Hello, everyone. I am That Weems Guy here for yet another episode. And this will be part two of our Significant Events series. Uh, joining me tonight uh, again will be John Hearn and Eric Gelhouse. They're the other members of the TACCON Chess Club uh, that we have decided to dub ourselves. Uh, tonight, or this episode, is actually going to be in response to uh, a comment by one of the listeners who listened to part one and asked us to specifically cover the Kyle Dean Keller, Dean Keller incident. Well, we're actually going to talk about three incidents that are, um, I would say, on par with the Dean Keller incident. And we'll get into that more in a second. John, if you would take a minute and say hello to everyone and introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. John Hearn. Uh, Long-time law enforcement officer, range master, staff instructor, have my own shingle hung out these days, uh, do a lot of reading, researching, and uh, occasional presentations around the country. And Eric Gilhouse. Evening, everybody. Eric, uh, retired cop from Northern California for 29 years, teach at Gunside, have my own shingle out. I don't quite nerd to the degree that John does, but I do give it my very best. All right, and Eric is joining us once again by cell phone. Uh, we have a system that we have hopefully worked out to try to cut out some of the walking on each other that we did the last time we had to have a cell phone uh, call in, but it's either that or not have the episode, and we would rather do the episode. So the three incidents we're going to talk to uh, talk about tonight will be the uh, unfortunate death and murder of Constable Lunchford in Texas, uh, Trooper Coates in South Carolina, and Deputy Kyle Dinkeller here in Georgia. Um, these three instances, incidents are noteworthy in that they were all captured on dash cam, but this was an era before YouTube and file sharing and what we now commonly see with uh, the technology. For one thing, well, at the time of the Lunsford murder, dash cams were still not prevalent in patrol cars. It was the only the big agencies and the, and the well-funded agencies that had them. Uh, and this, this incident is actually credit, credited with a uh, push towards putting dash cams in law enforcement vehicles. Uh, the other thing about these two instances or these three instances is that, uh, you know, now an incident happens and almost in real time, it gets posted to the internet and we're watching it by the end of the day or the next day. You know, these took place all in the 90s, and you had to actually know someone that had a copy of the video cassette and get a copy of the video to watch it. I remember the Dean Keller happened in the year before I went to the academy, and they showed it to us then. And I saw it a couple of years later when I went for a supervisory class at the State Training Center and managed to get a copy of the cassette and bring it back to the agency. And we all had to gather around a VCR and put the tape in, where now you just get that over your cell phone. So I'm going to throw it to John real quick for comments along those lines. Yeah, I think it's just a reminder that there was a day when Blockbuster still existed. And just the novelty of the video in the cars um, was totally different to everybody. One of the, the weird quirks about the Lumsford murder was that the microphone he was using cut out at certain high volume sounds. So one of the things that confused the investigators was he actually had gunshot wounds. He had been shot with his own gun, but nobody could figure out where the gunshots had taken place. The technology was so new, they didn't understand how the, uh, the microphone he was using wasn't even going to pick up the uh, gunshots. 
And again, um, I think that both of these, uh, the two are uh, murders, because Lunsford was, I believe, 91. And the other one we're talking about, the murder of uh, South Carolina trooper Mark Coates was 92. Uh, there was a company, I think they're still in business, called In the Line of Duty. And that was where you got your law enforcement training back then. You had to either, you know, get the video cassette, or I think there was actually a, a satellite TV channel that tried to sell their material along the way. So it was one of those things that um, we had never seen this before. You know, I think we're all instructors here, and we all recognize how important it is when we're trying to teach somebody something rather than discussing it, actually to show it to them. And these were the first instances, um, especially, you know, the, the ones that occurred in 91 and 92, where we actually watched the officer be assaulted on tape. And in the Coates particular instance, watched him expire on tape. And they were very impactful videos. Eric. All right, I'm off mute. Yes, I just want to go back and hear what John said. They were very emotionally significant for especially the young cop in that era to see these come out. And like, I didn't remember the names of the officers on the first two, but as soon as I saw the Lunsford video, I'm like, oh yes, I remember this. And, and here were the lessons from it. Um, and interestingly, we were having a conversation in the pre-show about some of those lessons were so significant and burned in that when you saw folks who weren't necessarily threats, but were unknown, and acting and starting to present like threats do those things. They got some very different responses from the officers based on them having seen what took place in these videos. Yeah. And, like, and like John said, if they weren't coming by videotape, you weren't getting to see them because that was the only way we were getting them. So they were, you would hear about them for months before you would finally see them. Yeah, and that, that's the point I'd really like to delve into. Maybe we'll come back to that uh, after we discuss all three of the incidents. Um, the Dean Keller incident was particularly impactful for me because one, it happened immediately before I went to the academy. And then number two, in being Georgia, a lot of us knew the location, my academy class, and we're watching the video. We knew the area in which this happened, or we knew people with that agency. Uh, when I saw the video in the supervisory class that I referenced, there were actually people who responded to the scene and that were responsible for guarding the murderer afterwards so that it wouldn't be the agency in which Cal Dinko belonged to having a guardian. And so that, that one was very personal for people around here. And it still is to a certain degree from, um, you know, it's old gray hairs. Um, but first let's go back. Uh, we'll talk about the Constable Lunsford incident that took place on January 23, 1991. And he was a Texas constable that had stopped um, a vehicle. I'm not sure where in Texas this took place but uh, was occupied multiple times by Hispanic males. And I believe it's when he went to search the trunk for drugs is that's when the, when the actual violence took place. I'll throw it to John. Yeah. So uh, what, what happens is that he's uh, working interdiction. I think that was part of the reason they had the, uh, the camera in the car was to make sure that the consent had been properly documented. And he hadn't been running the camera in the car very long. And that was one of the, the points, the teaching points from Lunsford and concern was whether he had um, the people that watched that murder that knew him said that was not how he would typically, they would have thought he would have acted having been on other scenes. So we're just starting to see in its infancy, the, uh, the effect of everybody being recorded, how it affects behavior. So, uh, you know, he goes and he has them open the trunk and while he's, while the trunk is being open and he's paying attention to the large load of marijuana in the vehicle, uh, first one suspect gets out, I believe the driver does, 
then the other two suspects uh, exit the vehicle. And um, if you understand Spanish, they actually sit there and discuss how they're going to assault the officer kind of in front of him. And because he didn't speak Spanish, he didn't realize what was going on. And uh, as I think anybody here knows, if you've got three guys, three bad guys and one of you, uh, that's a pretty bad fight. So um, pretty much almost contemporaneous with the discovery of the large load of marijuana, uh, one assaults him high, one assaults him low. He's dragged off camera. He's stabbed his, uh, to give you some idea how long this was, you know, his service revolver. He is then shot with his own service revolver, uh, left on the side of the road, and the uh, suspects immediately flee the area. Yeah, the guy that did the low part of the takedown actually did a textbook, you know, attempted a textbook uh, double leg takedown. And so it yeah. wasn't like he was just making this up on the fly. This He knew how to do a takedown. And he attempted it, and it looked like Constable Lumford was able to to partially defend against that. But with the other person grabbing him high, it, he was just completely out, outmatched. And uh, John, in the pre-show, you talked about how there was an issue with the microphone. Oh, I thought I touched on earlier that basically the uh, the microphone, uh, the concept was so new that they didn't even oh. you know that when he was murdered, they didn't realize that the that the shots have been fired because the microphone didn't pick up those rounds. Um, I'm sorry. You did, you did mention that in the intro, not in the yeah. pre-show. I'm sorry. Uh, Eric, any thoughts? So <clears throat> some of the lessons that came out of that were about Lunsford. Let me back up. Lunsford was a sole constable in that town. And I watched, when we talked about doing this episode, watched a couple of YouTube videos to try to find the video of the actual shooting. And they had interviewed his wife other people in the town and he had a significant issue against drugs period which is why he was working interdiction on a highway that flowed from the texas mexico border up through the central part of the country going north um, so that's why he was doing the inter a lot of interdiction but he had no backup at all to be available so there's there's that uh one of the other issues was the lessons picked up on this were when you start having multiple people exiting a vehicle and either disengaging or starting to try to control that, maybe not physically, but through commands, through display of weapons and those things, rather than him being focused on the trunk and letting everybody get there. Um, there's, there's some different tactics, techniques, and procedures that in hindsight, we all know could have been used looking at the video, but he, he may not have been in a position to even pick up on that if the fixation was on the load in the trunk and not having seen something like this happen before. Yeah, John, do you have a thought? Yeah, and uh, if you go back, uh, I watched the line of GDV a long time ago. The, uh, the takeaways from this are even more numerous than that. Uh, the first clue was something was wrong was he actually tried to initiate the traffic stop in a well-lit parking lot. It was very clear that was his intent. That's where apparently he liked to do his work. And uh, when you start talking about pre-assault indicators for our law enforcement folks out there, um, the subjects very intentionally ignored the, the warning lights and proceeded into a darker area, which would set their advantage to them. And again, it goes back to those, those behaviors and indicators, which to the, the average citizen may not seem like much. But if you're a law enforcement officer and you're familiar with these kind of tactics, that's the thing that really, really sets the, uh, the spidey senses going. And uh, just a, a minor correction, uh, one of the great tragedies about the Lumsden murder was that there was a, on the video, a deputy drives by him making the initial part of that traffic stop, but apparently Lunsford had a reputation for not liking backup on scene and he liked to work alone. So literally, 
uh, one of the, it's, you know, it's late at night when this goes on. One of the cars that went by was a, was a potential backup officer who would subsequently find him murdered uh, just a few minutes afterwards because he saw the, the, the vehicle that had just, he had been making the traffic stop on. It was kind of a clue when the, they suddenly went screaming past him that, and he went and checked on Lumsford. So a lot of takeaways there for the, uh, the guys out there that are still carrying the badge and gun. Eric? No, I think John hit picked up on those extra points that I hadn't seen from that video, the line of duty video. Yeah, I was not aware of those either. Uh, I guess we should have a little brief discussion on what is a Texas constable. Uh, for those that are not aware, a constable is a elected position it's sort of like a sheriff, but, but not quite. Uh, in Texas, the counties are divided into, I believe they call them townships or districts, and each district gets a constable, and they do th have full law enforcement powers. Uh, they can do things like serve civil papers and, and execute warrants and, and, and the like. So in the rural counties, they're like a separate law enforcement agency that's working by themselves. Hey, John, you mentioned that deputies going by. That could be the deputy from the sheriff's office, but not necessarily the deputy constable. And so you've got interagency operability going on there at the same time. Any comments on that? All right, we'll move on to the Trooper Coates incident. Uh, this is a South Carolina trooper. This happened on November the 20th, 1992. Um, to kind of paint a picture of the geography, uh, you have Savannah, which is on the extreme east coast of Georgia, and I-95 that runs up the eastern seaboard comes through Savannah, and it crosses over the river into South Carolina, and that is where this incident took place. Um, uh, apparently, the, the trooper was there working. You know, that's a common area to see the South Carolina troopers is directly coming across into Georgia right there, and he had made the stop was speaking with the suspect on the side of the road and went to initiate a pat down at which point in time the suspect pulled a small uh i think it was a 22 and shot and the round if i remember correctly went through the velcro strap that held the the trooper's vest together and it went in and nicked his aorta and the trooper drew and fired multiple times with his revolver i think he hit the suspect five times now, I thought it was 38 plus B. John, you said earlier um, that you thought it was a 357 Magnum, but I know he hit the suspect at least five times, uh, but the suspect lived and the trooper died. Uh, John? Well, that, uh, just, just a correction, though, the, you know, when he goes to do the search, the suspect has one of those horrible North American arms, 20, you know, single shot 22 uh -huh. revolvers. And the first round actually is stopped by the vest. There's a scuffle on the ground. Okay. And when Coates is able to separate from the suspect, that's when he shoots him five times. As he's pushing back, he's on the radio, on his portable radio, calling for backup. And while um, he's out there in the open is when the suspect discharges the revolver a second time and he sustains the fatal wound. Uh, Trooper Coates retreats to the front of his car, is continuing to broadcast a radio message, and you literally um, watch him uh, bleed out on tape. Um, so it's just a horrible situation. You know, he was out there, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he was actually intentionally working uh, interdiction as well, which is another similarity with the Lunsford traffic stop. Um, you know, out there looking, you know, whether it's drug interdiction or just criminal interdiction, um, making a lot of traffic stops, always looking for the uh, um, trying to get the big score, that sort of a thing. 
So uh, I believe it was, you know, he was shot five times, but you know, they were insignificant. You know, they, they didn't strike any vital structures, which is why the suspect actually survived uh, all five rounds he was struck with. Yeah. One thing I noted about the pat down too, was he was standing directly in front of the suspect, reaching forward, patting him down rather than securing him and patting him down from behind. And that opened up the opportunity for the suspect to, to make his move. Throw it to Eric. Uh, I will have to alibi on this. Um, I am not as familiar with this one as you guys. The one thing I will talk about is the, the bat searches, and you, you brought up the positioning on that. And this is one of those things where events have driven improvements in tactics, techniques, and procedures, and getting behind people, controlling the hands, doing doing either a legit Terry frick after a stop that's driven based on information or if you do work an officer safety pad at a level below a Terry Frisk, being in a position to control the hands, being in a position of advantage when you do that is one of, one of the lessons from this. And then I'll bow out. Yeah, another thing we can talk about from this incident was, you know, two good Samaritans stopped to help the trooper. And a, sub, you know, a second trooper is responding to the radio call for help. And when he arrives on scene, he doesn't know if the Good Samaritans are there to help or if they're the suspects. And you know, he draws down on them and starts giving verbal commands in a very excited uh, tone, as you would expect. Uh, for these citizens out there, should you stop to help in a situation like that, please understand that the responding officers don't know whether or not you're the good guy. You know, but they don't. And so that's a situation where I would say you're not bowing down and kissing the ring and bowing down to the man, but it's a good point, you know, good place at that point to just go ahead and follow the verbal commands and it can all be cleared up momentarily rather than trying to explain, no, 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 I'm a good guy. That's not the time. I'll throw it to John. No, I, just, uh, I think it's an excellent point. If I recall, that it was like a couple of passing truckers and one of them had like grabbed like a, a lug wrench or something like that to um, kind of sort the suspect out, which I mean, just, I think, you know, speaks to a certain bravery to begin with, but uh, that, you know, that potential, the potential for tragedy is very, very rife. You know, we had the incident, uh, I believe it was last year in Colorado where the, uh, the, the, you know, the armed citizen had shot the bad guy and goes to pick up the bad guy's rifle and is, is shot immediately by responding officers. Um, anytime you're at a scene where an officer's been shot, anybody with a gun in their hand or anywhere near them is placing themselves in, in great, great jeopardy and, you know, do everything the officers say, do it very slowly and deliberately. Because uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of times officers are going to make decisions not on necessarily what you have in your hands, but, but how you move and you know, doing everything as slowly as possible uh, is, is going to be key there. Eric, any thoughts? No, I'm glad brought John brought up the Colorado incident. I mean, that one was absolutely tragic. The, the citizen with the concealed carry permit responded, ended the threat um, after the death of the officer. But unfortunately, when the responding officers arrived, he had the suspect's rifle in his hand. That and that kind of goes back to obviously talking about the, the truckers there and everything else. Other than that, I, I'm out on that one. Yeah, one thing that I also should bring up here is I watched one video in which the suspect was was uh, interviewed, and you know you hear his point of view of it, 
and he's basically talking about he's been a dope smoker all his life and cops look at at uh, people who smoke dope as if they're criminals well if you're smoking dope you know from in most of the places in the united states you are still a criminal um at least in 1992 that's for sure yeah you were in 1992 everywhere in the united states now that's not necessarily the the case on the state level um but the individuals he didn't really come out and say it in the portion of the interview that i heard but he's basically implying is you know i had to kill that trooper because he was going to find that i had dope you know trying to rationalize it you, you still took a man from his family over your personal choices but people can tend to rationalize and and do any of their behavioral way they want to because they don't want to admit that I'm the criminal, I'm the murderer, I'm the bad guy. All right. It goes back to what our friend William April said, and I'm paraphrasing, which is, you know, your knowledge and consent is not required for someone to take take your life and take you from your loved ones. You know, he 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 made those decisions apparently well in advance and was going to willing to go to pretty far extremes, and you know that kind of mentality. Um, you know, cause he, I don't think he even had like a, uh, um, anything beyond a user level amount of dope. It wasn't like he was going to prison for, you know, the next 50 years for trafficking, you know, in pounds of marijuana. He just did not want to go to jail that night. Yep. Yeah, and you know, that's, that's, that's the thing is there's just sometimes people decide they're not going and they're willing to fight to the death of it. And to get to the point, we're going to touch on a little bit later that Eric brought up is the cop doesn't know which one you are. So, so just, go ahead, Eric. No, I was going to say, we were about a month past the anniversary of a murder of a coworker of mine from that era. Now, we didn't have dash cam, so it's not caught on video. But we had a situation where the suspect, an Aryan Brotherhood prison gang member, recently paroled, got the drop on our guy with a sawed-off shotgun. And our guy complied and was still murdered for it. Um, and there were a lot of lessons to be learned out of that one at the time, but it, it was in that same era. And here was somebody who was was following the commands of the suspect and was still murdered in spite of that. Or probably as a result because of it, but you know, it's just, it depends on how one looks at it. And out of that era without the, the, the body worn camera or the dash cam footage, but it's still very impactful. And it will go to site some of the other stuff we're going to talk about afterwards. John. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, it's, it's interesting because uh, I know we talked the last time we were on, we talked about the onion field murders. Well, I'm actually uh, working my way through the book and um, I did not realize how compliant the officers in the onion field murders had been up to the point that the subjects decided to, to, to kill them. So, you know, you had this, this horrible situation in which somebody has a drop on you and, you know, surrender and cooperation does not guarantee anything. Um, you know, we, we went to ascribe our own morals and beliefs to the behaviors of others, but that's not always the case. Yeah. John, is it Tom that says if you wait to see if they're going to kill you and they kill you, it's too late to do anything about it? Uh, that sounds like something Tom probably said. <laughs> All right. We're going to move into the Kyle Dinkeller incident. This took place on January the 12th, 1998. Uh, took place in Lawrence County, Georgia. Uh, if you're familiar with the geography of Georgia, uh, Macon is pretty much the center portion of the state. And I-75 uh, runs through it north-south. I-16 uh, departs from it and runs to Savannah. Um, 
Lawrence County would be 45 minutes to an hour or so, depending on where this took place in the county east of Macon. Um, deputy Dean Keller was still a fairly young deputy. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, he and his wife had one child and she was pregnant with another. Uh, or she was, or she may have been pregnant with the first child, but I know she was, I'm pretty sure she was pregnant. Um, he makes the stop of a pickup truck for speeding and, you know, unbeknownst to him, the driver of the pickup truck is a Vietnam veteran, um, who had been a, a infantry platoon leader. And quite frankly, Deputy Dean Keller did not control the situation. And he ends up in a physical confrontation at first with the suspect, uh, he does, it's not shown on video, but he does strike the suspect with a baton and takes him to the ground, but the suspect gets up and goes back to the Toyota pickup truck that he was driving and proceeds to load an M1 carbine. And Deputy Dean Keller is give, giving him commands as the suspect yells back and forth at him. They have kind of a verbal exchange. Um, I timed it one time and it was like 20... It was either 22 or 26 seconds from the first time you hear Deputy Dean Keller use the word gun until he fires a shot. And he actually fired the first shot at the suspect, but he missed. If I remember correctly, Dean Keller fired um, 34 rounds from a Glock 22, which means he had to reload twice to get that many rounds. If I remember correctly, the suspect fired 10 rounds from the M1 carbine. He was intentionally shooting. Uh, in the periphery, such as arms and legs, because he suspected that the deputy had on body armor and he was trying to immobilize him. Uh, the 10th and final round, he stood over the deputy and fired around, carefully aimed through the deputy's eyeball, killing him. Um, you know, kind of the, the changes in technology, um, the pickup truck speeds away, the patrol car sitting on the side of the road with the lights flashing. By the time other deputies respond, and they set up the scene, the car has quit running and the light bar flashing runs the battery down. And they ended up having to jump start the car to get it cranked back up so they could get the video cassette out of the, uh, the in-car camera system. And they actually went to a nearby house, knocked on the door and asked if they come in and watch the video on you know, the residence VCR. And that's where they got the tag number and began doing the search. Um, for the suspect um what actually gave him away if you go watch the video on youtube is you can see some movement in his pickup truck and that's his dog and when they were doing the search the dog's movements what gave him away when they were looking for him in the woods and that's how they found him and captured him uh, i've got some other tidbits but i'm gonna throw it to john for some uh for some conversation first go ahead john just a couple of things. Uh, if you look back at that stop, apparently there's a, there's a very interesting documentary that somebody did. You can get it on uh, Battle of Amazon, where he uh, it's a more current um, kind of trying to understand what happened on that scene as far as some of his mentality and stuff like that. But one of the things I picked up from watching that was that you had a similar situation in that uh, the suspect did not stop immediately. You know, he, I believe he would actually have been clocked speeding on the interstate. He took an immediate exit and then drove a while and didn't initially, initially yield to the, the blue lights uh, before he stopped. So what he'd essentially done is he had moved himself from the well-traveled you know, interstate corridor out to a more remote location that uh, obviously is again, uh, maneuvering to put himself at an advantage. And uh, you know, we're talking about the shooting going on. My understanding is that you know, uh, Dean Keller went through a magazine, reloaded uh, and was in that second magazine. And for all those rounds he fired, all he got was a, uh, 
a grazing round to the suspects, basically fat roll. You can actually, on the video, you can see the suspect, I think, grab his left side with his hand for a second. And that was the only uh, round that Dink Heller was able to put on him, even though the, the fight took around took place within, you know, a, a direct proximity to a Ford Crown Victoria, which is not a particularly, you know, length, uh, great length there. Eric? I didn't catch all of what John said. One of the other things that, no, let me back up. There was a fair amount of mythology um, at the time, and there were behaviors attributed to Deputy Dean Keller. Um, people were saying that you know, maybe he'd been reprimanded for being too, too assertive. Maybe this, maybe that. Um, and one of the interesting things about the documentary that John referenced was they, they went in and refuted a lot of the mythology around the case and they managed to get it down to just just the facts this is this is what actually happened this is what had gone on in the lead up to it um it, what had actually happened like administratively and or not happened administratively in the lead up to it that was attributed as being responsible for dean keller's uh, mindset or behavior during the event so uh, today when i was teaching a red dot class uh, i had somebody bring up one of the myths out of new hall about pocketed brass and he had been taught that in the academy and he was absolutely adamant no no i was taught this in the academy and it happened I'm like you were taught in the academy because we all were but we kind of have to look at what actually happened not what was rumored on the mythological side of some of these things yeah, yeah that's go ahead john i was going to chime in there. there's some interesting backstory there that the the documentary i was talking about you know uh dink heller had started out um his father had introduced uh, him to the sheriff and and kind of got him the first job and he had actually spent some time with that sheriff's office i believe he'd actually worked as a jailer for a while before he got out on the road and he had only been uh you know he'd been with the sheriff's office for a while but he had actually been on the road a fairly short time as part of his career and it was uh, obviously from your dad introducing you and helping you you know being able to get a job in the jail uh apparently it was a very political county you know, and a lot of the subsequent uh behaviors that Dean Keller involved in were probably related to some of those political machinations for lack of better words yeah the supervisor class that i mentioned earlier uh, when we watched the video in it there was a local one of the towns in in lawrence county is east dublin and there was an east dublin uh officer that was working the day of the shooting and responding was there on support of the capture and actually guarded the suspect in the jail and from what he told us was he refuted some of the information that was out about the incident back then, such as Dean Keller had just gotten in trouble for drawing his gun on somebody by the sheriff. He said he did not know that that was true or not. Uh, he'd heard it, but he'd never been able to verify it. Uh, he did say that the suspect, uh, as he was laying in his cell, was taunting the officers. Uh, you should have heard him scream and, and things like that. He was saying that, trying to, trying to fire up the officers. Um, told that you know just before he died or was executed years later uh he gave an interview in which he basically asserted that he was in the right for killing deputy dean keller because dean keller was a younger man who was telling him to keep his hands out of his pockets and that disrespected him therefore he was morally or obligated and justified in killing him um now we might think that's preposterous but a a friend of mine who is you know and not in law enforcement whatever has watched the video with some of his 
friends completely away from the law enforcement side of it. And they've watched the video and they said, oh, well, he disrespected him. Like it justified murdering the guy over disrespect. And I just, I can't fathom that. Well, and, and you know, to make it, Dan Keller starts that traffic stop. He doesn't start it out as, you know, a hard ass. Uh, he starts it out as a, as a fairly cordial contact. Uh, pretty much like we'd all like our law enforcement to, to interact with us. And it goes downhill very, very quickly. Eric? What I was going to say was you got to go back to the stuff that April, Dr. April's talked about or that the rest of us have seen in terms of how the criminal subculture views respect in opposition to guys, well, in comparison to how kind of the rest of society views respect. Um, there's a great difference in what is considered respectful and disrespectful behavior. I had not heard the disrespect part of this um, from the suspect before. However, it's not surprising. Now that people would buy into it and think it was okay, that is kind of flabbergasting. But I can understand where if the suspect perceived that, why he went down the road he did. Um, talked about the co-worker of mine that was murdered in 95. When the suspect surrendered, two suspects surrendered, I transported the female to local PD where she was interviewed. And I ended up down in the holding cells where both suspects were. And the male who was five days out of Pelican Bay, as soon as we put him in the holding cell, went right back into the prison workout routine. He wasn't interested in communicating, having any conversation or anything else. He just went back right back into programming the way he programmed in a security housing unit. So in a cell by himself with essentially nothing working out because he was going back to death row on San Quentin or another prison for the rest of his life. And he was just getting physically prepared for being back in that world. So I'm, while I hadn't heard it, it, it's not surprising that that would be a justification given by that individual. You know, and go back to what John said just a minute ago, it's, you know, I can put myself in the deputy's shoes because I'm thinking, why is this a fight to the death? You know, I wouldn't think that telling someone to keep their hands out of the pockets, who's already obviously acting the way this guy's acting on the traffic stop, is a challenge to a duel from which only one of us will walk away. But the deputy's knowledge and consent weren't relevant to that because the other guy decided it was going to be a fight to the death. And for private citizens, you don't know when you have that confrontation over a parking space or a table at a restaurant or whatever, you don't know in your mind is you're just arguing over a parking space, but to the other person, it may be that's the, that's the go signal for this fight to the death that you didn't know you were a part of. And so that's something to keep in mind as to what you're going to take a stand on uh, when you interact with unknown people. And I'll throw that back to John for a comment. Well, no, I just, I'm reminded of a, a, a mutual friend of ours that we'll just call him Jack. He talks about the My Bad 20. He says, you know, he just keeps a 20 in his pocket. So like when he's in a bar or something like that, and this is a very, very large dude. I mean, who, he's commonly referred to as like a giant, literally. He said, you know, a lot of times you're just better off spending $20. Hey, buy, I'm sorry, I spilled your drink. You know, let me, you know, let me buy you around or something like that that you just never know, especially in certain environments, what is going to be regarded as disrespectful. And as you said, you know, 
worthy of fighting to the death over, you know, whether it's a parking spot or just, you know, um, you bump into somebody, uh, you, you know, track, the light turns green, traffic starts to move, and the guy in front of you jams on his brake and you, you, you know, tap the back of the car. If that's a person from a certain cultural background, that uh, car that has rims on it worth more than the vehicle itself, that may be all the material possession they have to show for the culture of gangs that they've been involved in, all the drugs they've sold, all the friends they've lost in that process. So again, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to make sense. Asking why, as Tom would tell us, doesn't do you any good. You know, the, the critical matter is that we've reached this point and you've got to decide, uh, you know, there's going to be violence involved. It's going to be a matter of who starts at first and who's ultimately victorious. Eric, any comment? No, I, I think for the event itself, it, it sums it up. I, I'll reserve comment for when we talk about some of the aftermaths. Yeah, as kind of an epilogue to the whole Dinkler thing, uh, I was at an FBI instructor class in Madison, Alabama, and I had gone to the Smashburger to eat dinner, and I was good. I had not gotten a milkshake or anything like that. I just had my burger and everything, and I'm, I'm sitting there at the table and uh, scrolling on my phone as I'm eating my dinner, and I see uh, deputies from back home. And news agencies starting to post that the suspect in that case had, had indeed been executed. And I got up and walked back up to the counter and ordered the largest Butterfinger milkshake they had uh, that you can get from Smashburger and went and sat back and, uh, and ate that milkshake or had that milkshake, enjoyed it while I read through all the articles I could find on this individual being executed. I, I think if, if a news agency had posted it, I read it. Um, I'm not trying to relish in his death, but it, it was that personal for me. Having seen it in the academy, the way I did, you know, it being that you know pivotal in mindset for me, you know, it's like okay, this is finally, finally done. Uh, I, I think the guy's name. Well, I won't we'll say his name because I don't want to give him any any publicity. Um, so to kind of tie these three together. You know, we already talked about this was the video age, uh, the start of the video age. Now the technology is almost to the point where you can watch body cameras real time. Matter of fact, there are some systems out there now where a supervisor can watch any active body camera and watch a stop in progress. Um, I recently watched a, um, a takedown in Philadelphia or was in a room where it was being monitored live in, from Philadelphia, but it was being monitored in Georgia. And that's just a completely different world uh, that we're getting into. So, let's, if John, do you have any thoughts about the technology before we move on? I was going to. I was just going to go back and, and let's touch on Dink Keller. Just one more point. Uh, yeah. I mentioned the documentary that you, that uh, somebody did. I believe uh, the the basically the person that decided to produce the documentary was an officer who had watched um, the murder, had been greatly influenced by it, and was trying to make sense of it. And it's a, uh, it's a fascinating um, story with how, every, how some people just want to avoid telling the truth and um, just try to avoid some ugly truths. Um, the, the, the story put forth by the guy that did the video, and uh, it makes a lot of sense when you see the various interviews, is that this was a very political. You, know, you have to remember Dink Keller um, had been, his only employer had been the sheriff's office. And apparently, shortly before this incident had occurred, uh, Dink Keller and some EMS units, fire units, had been responding to a motor vehicle crash, and a vehicle would not get out of the way, would not yield to the red and blue lights of all the emergency vehicles. So when the, they finally get on scene, Dink Keller ends up 
um, rather sharply rebuffing the person who would not get out of the way of all the emergency vehicles. I don't even think he wrote him a ticket. I think he just basically said some really, really mean words to him. Well, it turns out that the person that he said really, really mean words to was a um, very influential supporter of the sheriff. And Dan Keller was given a choice. He said, you can either write a letter of apology to my campaign supporter or you're going to be fired. So um, it's fascinating watching everybody try to dodge the question um, as to whether this actually this letter had to be written or not. Uh, some of the, you know, the, one of the parties that would have been most interested in the letter having not been written is like, oh, I don't, I don't remember anything at all. But then you actually have a GBI agent going, yeah, he had to write the letter on my computer and I had to help him edit it. So when you have a GBI agent going, yeah, he wrote it on my computer and I had to help him edit it. I think it gives a lot of credence. And the, the general consensus from the video I got was that when Dink Heller pulled over this, this homicidal maniac, the biggest concern he had in the back of his mind was this is an older gentleman because the, the guy that killed him, I think, was in, his, was in his late 40s or early 50s. You know, he's kind of distinguished. I don't know if you'd say that, you know, that he was necessarily moneyed or not, but I think what was in the back of his mind was I have to be really careful how I treat this guy. This could be another supporter of the sheriff. And I've been put on notice, you know, that the rumor going around about Dink Heller for the longest time was that he had been um, disciplined or threatened discipline for excessive use of force. And apparently that was based on the, uh, you know, yelling at the guy for failing to yield. So when Dink Heller confronts this guy, he's in the situation where he's, his, uh, you know, his, he's already got one kid. I can't remember if he even knew whether his wife was pregnant, but it, it's certainly possible that he knew. And as he's trying to interact with this person in the lowest level possible, um, you know, he's in the, in the whole back of his mind the whole time is whether his actions are going to affect the longevity of his family. And unfortunately, I think he ended up obviously focusing on the wrong point. But I think it, it goes to the point that, you know, a lot of times politics really shouldn't have any place in these businesses. And ultimately, you have to make, a, you know, priority decisions. You know, Dink Keller could have probably, you know, could have gotten a job somewhere else, probably in law enforcement with a post certificate, but his family will never get him back. And uh, I highly recommend that video. I think I, I, you can purchase it off of YouTube uh, for a very modest fee, but the guy spends a lot of time delving into it. And if you, uh, if you like watching people being interviewed to see whether they're being truthful or not, it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating video to watch. I'll check that out. I know there was a documentary produced back closer to the time when the incident happened, and I've seen it. And at that point in time, the family was very cooperative in the, in the production of that documentary. And they actually wanted the incident to be used for all the training value that it could be. I don't know if that's still the case, if they're still. Yeah, Dick uh, Keller's dad's in this video and talking about his son and how great he was and how he regularly visits um, the grave and stuff like that. So it's just it's an interesting follow up because, you know, we'd heard those rumors. I, I, I saw the video the first time when I went through basic in 2002 at Futsi. And, you know, they, they kind of shared their, that rumor there, but they said we can't substantiate it. So I thought I thought the video did a great job of, you know, saying, hey, well, there was a nugget of truth there about behavior. But it was um, behavior that I think that we all would have probably done at some point. You know how frustrated we might be responding to a motor vehicle crash. And you've got the, the one idiot that won't get out of the way. And, um, you know, again, getting in that highly politicized uh, arena where you, you know, criticized and, uh, you know, said mean, mean things to one of the sheriff supporters. That should not be what determines whether you keep your job or not. Yeah, I, as you talk about that, I'm flashing back to all the times of my career that had the same thing. People just will not get out of the way of the emergency vehicles. Or they try to drive through a scene. You know, you got seven fire trucks, three deputy cars, and a tow truck. They're trying to get an overturned vehicle out of a ditch, and people are trying to drive through it because where they have to be is so important. 
Well, yeah. there, there is nothing that will destroy your faith in humanity greater than directing traffic at an accident scene. I, I put it up at the top of the list. Yeah, um, uh, I, it's on the list of things that I don't know if I will live long enough to overcome that particular demon. I've conquered most of my demons in life, but that is one that will send me right back to to uh, angry corporal days. Uh, Eric, any thoughts on those points before we move on? Uh, constructive thoughts on the event or traffic accident and losing all faith in your fellow man? <laughs> Either one. Yeah, directing traffic is never a good thing. It's never a good thing. Um, no, and, and unfortunately, it's why, you know, we, we've all been in the supervisor chair. We've all been in the FTO chair. How you pull, you pull the reins on your people is, can be very impactful, can be very important. And sometimes those messages need to be crafted to where you don't destroy the horse, yeah. right? Trying to get it to where you can put a saddle on it. And that's inartful, but that's kind of the best analogy I can come up with at this point. I will say this, though, that I would rather have uh, an employee that I have to pull the reins on, back on than one that I have to spur. Amen. Oh, oh, yes. Yes. And you just have to understand that for the people that are going out and getting after it and actually working, they're going to create more opportunities to mess up than, yep. the, than the, the, the guy that you have to spur uh, to get to do anything. Uh, they manage to last so long because they never do anything that would get them fired. It was almost a plaque in every in every office of the federal agency that ran the task force I was on. Big cases, big problems, little cases, little problems, no cases, no problems. Mm -hmm. Which is not what we wanted our cops to do for decades. Right. Uh, Eric, any thoughts on the technology of video as how it, you know, from what we're starting in the early 90s to where it is now? So it's infinitely better quality, right? Um, my understanding is on the current generation of Axon cameras, they've actually got the cameras fairly close to be able to work at what the human eyeball sees. Um, we are, like John said, you know, the technologies, are you, I think it was you saying, the technologies there where we can monitor, in some cases, cameras real time from the field, which is probably not the best thing. A bad part of this is that anyone out there who thinks they know how police work should be done can, can try to, on their own, evaluate events and render decisions without having a lot of the context that's needed to make those decisions. Um, and it's, it's instantaneous where in some places, agencies are putting the stuff out, the videos out without the context that the officers had or even what was known about the event going into it. Whereas with some of the stuff from the 90s, by the time it got around to you, we had a fairly decent idea of what the context of the event was. And so any Monday morning quarterbacking that was happening was happening with a bit more idea of what had gone on. But unfortunately, with the, the spread of, this, of the videos these days, the speed at which they could spread, a lot of that's lost. Because there were so few of those videos back then, I think they were really impactful. Add to that, we had a lot of the original members of the officer survival movement, the officer safety movement that started in the 70s, 
were still in law enforcement. They were sergeants, they were lieutenants, they were captains. We even had a few chiefs that had made it that far. So those videos combined with their experiences had, a, I think, a much deeper impact on the officers and how they handled events going forward than maybe the videos today. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I just trying. One thing I think has changed. I don't know if it's necessarily for the better. Is uh, at least in the videos I tend to see released, is that how does it like the, the last moments tend to be cut out from the video. So you know, I think what part of what makes Coates so impactful is that you watched the life drain from him. Uh, one of the videos we haven't mentioned um, that was almost contemporaneous with this was there was a Texas DPS trooper by the name of Vetter who was murdered by a, a, a guy over a seatbelt ticket. And that video is absolutely disturbing because you sit there and you can hear the trooper's agonal breathing as he takes his last gasps. So, um, you know, I think part of the reason is that the videos aren't as impactful as everyone. We're seeing a lot more of them, but we're also, um, we're shying away from the ultimate reality that the video is trying to show us, which is the, the penultimate consequence of these bad decisions that results in an officer's death. Yeah, let, let's touch on that better video for a minute. Um, you know, older gentleman, and it's basically you kind of get to the same motivation as the Dean Killer video. He just wasn't going to be told what to do uh, by by the by the officer. And you know, he he didn't he step out with a rifle as well. He stepped out with a rifle with a thirty thirty and just just incredible hip shot smoke, uh, hit the officer. I think in the head. So the officer maybe only got off one shot and missed completely. But, uh, you know, the, the guy was kind of a crazy whack job. And he had told yeah. the local cops that he was going to he would kill them if they ever stopped him for a seatbelt violation. Yeah. And I don't even think that's what better stopped him for. He the guy just made the assumption. I've told these cops I'm going to kill them if they stop me for my seatbelt violation. And today is the day. Uh, it's just it's a bizarre set of motivations going on there. And if I remember correctly, he actually walked back to the trooper's car, got on the radio and called for help for the trooper and said, I just shot the highway patrolman. He needs help. And I'm paraphrasing. And then like walked back and sat in, down in his car waiting for the response to get there. And then the response that gets there is like, I don't have the words. They're, they're on the radio with these are trying to coordinate stopping traffic on the other side of the scene and everything. And they've got this guy's there bleeding to death. And they're not going in, and, and the suspect has given up. And of course, you know, we're, we're watching this after the fact and on video, but it was just chilling the lack of decisive action that took place on the part of the, the response, in my opinion, in my view, based on the context that I have. Uh, John, well, any comment? Well, a lot of people don't want to plan for the worst case scenarios, which is a lot of what we're talking about. And, mm -hmm. you know, how you respond to a, the scene of a murder or something like that that's that kind of stuff you need to be game playing and figuring out a long, long time before that day comes along. Um, you know, one of my favorite Claude Warner quotes, who I think stole it from Bill Rogers is, you know, I'll figure it out when I get there has killed more people than just about anything else. You know, figuring out when you get there is not a particularly great strategy when it comes to dealing with these critical incidents. Eric. And that is a, that's a benefit. That's one of the benefits of the proliferation of the videos probably two days a week as a sergeant. Um, I was just grabbing videos that had happened, playing them in briefing once we got done with the immediate stuff of the day. All right, how would you handle this? Here's what you, here's what you know based on this is what's come out with the information. Here's the video. And we would take that stuff in chunks and walk it through. 
if you're at an agency that's that that's that's busy, that's active, that has a lot of events going on, you can get the stuff by some level of osmosis. You can just listen to it on the on the radio. But if you don't have those things, then you can try to plan for them and not rely on it. Open, not we're going to make it up when we get there or figure it out when we get there. But you can start to lay some of the pathways or things, at least the thought processes, based on videos and talking through those events. So if there's been a benefit to, to the proliferation, that's it, is be able to work it for training purposes going forward. Well, yeah, I, uh, I'm teaching use of force at the basic academy now. And we literally, you know, half the class is the legal foundations for the use of force. And then almost half the class is uh, there's such a rich vein of material out there that you can mine. You can literally show the officers real life incidents and have them make use of force decisions and analyze them from, you know, the terms of the gram factors and the other considerations directly from the video from what's a, a fairly good representation of what the officer was, you know, mostly seeing at the time. Yeah, I'd like to finish up this discussion with the point that Eric brought up earlier. And that's, you know, it seems like we are in kind of a trap. We show these videos to the officers as a training standpoint is, look, this is how things can go horribly wrong. And the officers start to recognize those signs. But what happens when we see those same signs? Um, you know, when we deal with a citizen who's not a bad guy. So Eric, we'll start with you on that. So just as an example, we'll go to the Lunsford event. So now you're dealing with a vehicle and all of a sudden drivers out, passengers out, backseat passengers coming out. If you've seen Lunsford, you're recognizing that as, especially if it's three males, hey, this is about to go really bad. The folks doing that, whether they're cognizant of what they're doing at that conscious of what they're doing at that point in time or not they're already spitting it up for you they're they're giving you the the answer to a problem and the question is whether the problem is actually there but if we handle that in a way that we should have handled it if they're all bad guys the, the unknowns or these normal human beings aren't necessarily going to understand why they're getting treated that way and all three of us have an acquaintance who's a prosecuting attorney up in the Pacific Northwest, and he has made the point time and again, we're really good at dealing with bad guys. Where we will get into problems is when we have unknowns that present as bad guys, we treat it as bad guys in order to control the situation, and then they can't understand why the event played out the way it did. How do you, how do you deal with that? You, once, well, hopefully they comply so that you can then take the time to sit them down and explain it. And even if they don't necessarily get it on the side of the road, you've at least teed it up for the sergeant lieutenant to give it another shot at explaining why that event played out the way it did. Why, if officers ask you to keep your hands where they can be seen and your response is to throw your hands into your waistband, you might well get a very adverse response from the officers. They have seen these videos. They have seen what happens. With well, yeah, if I can that, chime in here. That uh... I wanted to get to. Go ahead, John. That was a, um, we haven't nerded out hardly at all. And let, let's launch into a quick nerd rant. You know, uh, one of the things that Murphy is hugely fond of is a concept called recognition prime decision making. And recognition prime decision making actually comes out of the firefighting world. Uh, when psychologists started to study the people that were responding to fires that had 15 or 20 years on the job, 
as they're rolling up on the fire, they're making very quick, highly accurate decisions on how they're going to attack that fire. You know, if, is the fire spread so far that there's no point in putting people inside to try to fight it? Is the fire at such a point that the building is likely to collapse if we send people? And what they found was after you had 15 or 20 years on the job as a firefighter, you could make those decisions very quickly because just like the, the title is recognition prime decision-making, um, the decision-making is already primed by what you've seen. And that's what these videos are effectively allowing us to do and where the confusion comes from is that we've been primed to identify the behaviors when we see them in advance. And that's the great thing about these videos. Uh, the problem is, is that when a normal, you know, decent person, for lack of better words, manifests the exact same behaviors as someone bent on a felonious assault or, and or murder attempt, that's not going to work, you know, that's not going to work out well until the situation can get stabilized. And just because you as the average person doesn't necessarily think that what you're doing is a signal of lethal intent to a well-trained officer, somebody that's actually paying attention, it can be huge. And the, the example I'll use, one of, the, one of my favorite, more interesting discussions is how do I handle being stopped by the police? And, you know, I've had people say, hey, well, when you, when you see the officer spin around behind you and you think you're going to get stopped, go on and get your registration out of the glove box and go on and get your insurance papers out and go on and have your ID out. Well, if the guy is just punching numbers, he's not going to notice it. But to an officer that's paying attention, um, you know, we lock on to where those heads are moving and all those behaviors that some people are encouraging to do, um, that head's going to, you know, lean toward the glove box. And to the well-trained officer, that looks like either you are secreting drugs somewhere under the car seat or you're accessing a weapon. Neither one of those is particularly good for us. And I think it's a great example of, you know, um, that recognition prime decision-making working in the real world. And, you know, I hate to say sometimes you just have to trust the police because of the inherent conflicts there, but the police are allowed to make decisions and act based on information known only to them at the time. It's a, you know, it's a professional field. We have best practices that have um, developed over years and years of, uh, I would say, practice, but unfortunately, a lot of deaths and mistakes being made over and over again. So we, we have some idea what bad people look like and how bad people act. And occasionally, you know, it goes back to the whole concept of, you know, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, we're going to assume it's a duck until proven otherwise. I think that's a, a lot of what Eric's getting toward. Yeah, yeah. You take the whole situation of you stop the car and people all of a sudden start getting out of it. Well, if you look at it always from, say, well, I've watched the lunch video. So people jumping out of a car, obviously bent on killing me. And you contrast to that with, say, the first 10 years of my career when I worked in a college town and you stop somebody for a minor traffic offense and everybody else in the car bails out because they got to get to class. Okay, drawing, <laughs> drawing down on college students jumping out because they're late at class isn't conducive to a long and prosperous career. Yeah, that's just not going to go over well. And it's trying to convey that to the general public is, look, when you jump out of the car as soon as it comes to a stop, understand what the officer is seeing and what's flashing through their mind and understand they don't have to be right. They just have to be reasonable. But if they're wrong, they pay with their lives. Yeah, let's let's give that a little bit of a credence and try to be reasonable on the citizen side of that. Uh, Eric? Yes. And it's also contextual, right? So if you're making the car stop at 8 a.m. on a university campus, 
and folks with book bags fail out of the car and are pulled through the classrooms. Okay, that's probably not the Lunsford scenario. But now put anybody making that stop in a rural or higher crime area and having that same behavior, you're going to get that. Um, John talked about the reaching for things. There's an FBI study. I've been racking my brain over the last couple of minutes trying to remember the author on it. It starts with a P, and that's all I can recall. But you looked at a bunch of Maryland officers, um, and what, you know, how many of them had had the opportunity to deadly force in their minds in situations that would have been justified, uh, contrasted with how many of them actually had used deadly force. And one of the preludes in that paper, in that article, up to it, is they interviewed a cop killer who'd been pulled over twice before he killed the officer. So he knew he was wanted, I think it was for murder. He gets pulled over by an officer who is like I watch him, looking at him through the clearly through the rearview mirror. He's watching what the guy's doing, he's paying attention. He's not worried about his sight book. He's not worried about his, his hat, right? He's just worried about the driver and the driver behaviors. Bad guy doesn't take him on. Cop gives a warning, bad guy drives off, doesn't even run the guy. He gets pulled over by a traffic cop. He's worried about the hat, worried about the ticket book, worried about all these other things, except for the bad guy driving the car who's armed and doesn't want to go back to jail, who ultimately ends up shooting and killing that officer. Um, and just the differences in that, right? So John was talking about, you know, is our approach numbers or is our approach like awareness and how that impacts? Yeah, so those are, those are two different sides of the coin, but reasonable behavior by citizens or at least acknowledgement of their behavior would be nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about the context. I made a stop on a rural highway in my county in which the vehicle wasn't really fleeing and eluding for me, but it didn't immediately stop either. I was in an unmarked car and uh, they passed me at an extremely high rate of speed and I pursued and I activated my lights after I called in the tag and they went for a short distance before they finally realized I was back there. And then they, you know, the driver immediately cuts to the side of the road, slams on brakes, skids to a stop in, in the soft dirt. And just the whole demeanor of everything was setting off my alarm bells. And I, I come to a stop, I get out and I start to make my approach on the vehicle. And right about the time I hit the rear quarter panel of the vehicle, I see the, the, and one other thing is that when the vehicle came to a stop, all the occupants put their hands out the window. Like, oh, these folks have been trained. They, they know how to be stopped. And as I'm walking up in the vehicle, all of a sudden, the driver's hands rocket back towards his waist area and his shoulders hunch. And from behind, it looked just like an appendix carry draw. Well, I don't know what my draw speed on that one was, but I was probably approaching the magical mythical one, you know, sub one second on that. I, I cleared Kydex extremely quickly and started giving verbal commands and everybody complied. And, you know, to cut to the end of the chase, the guy was riding along with a coffee mug resting on his leg. And it miraculously stayed in place during that whole maneuver where he hits the ditch and slides to a stop. But just as I'm approaching, the coffee mug spills over and dumps uh, coffee right in his lap. And of course, he reacted to that. But that's how pivotal one of these things can turn. And just how quickly it is. And, you know, my actions were reasonable. And I also think his actions were reasonable to respond to that coffee dumping in his lap. Uh, John, anything? You know, number one, you know, the, a lot of times it's, you know, one, one, one indicator may not be 
huge, but you know, when you combine it with not stopping immediately and getting out of the mm-hmm. car and reaching around, those are the things that can, uh, can really, really, uh, get people excited. I was going to chime in, uh, you know, Eric had mentioned the, the FBI study. I think he's talking about Pinazoto. Uh, he's been a long-term PhD with him. He did uh, in the line of fire and a bunch of the other big studies. Uh, I think that Eric was talking about as far as uh, uh, officers being situations to, to moral, to legally use deadly force, but had not actually had done so. Um, so that's yeah, a lot that's of that. Study, John. That is Pinazoto is the name. Uh-huh. Eric, any final thoughts on what we've been discussing right now? Uh, the only other one we, we want to hit is, and John brought this up in the pre-show, is there's another Texas video. Mm-hmm. And it involves a, I think we said it was a Texas DPS trooper who had seen the Lunsford video and had made a decision that he was he was not going to be on the receiving end of that. And John, you're more, I, I recall it, but I don't can't recall the specifics. Do you want to touch on that one? Well, it was, a, it was interesting because it does show the value of this. Uh, it's a the trooper was uh, Andy Lopez and very, very similar situation. He makes a stop on a car late at night, um, has a load of dope in the car, and there's three individuals who end up out of the vehicle. And as he's uh, opening the trunk and sees the dope in there, one of the suspects actually shoots at him. And he immediately uh, moves rapidly off screen to the left, uh, fires one-handed with his 220, engages the suspect, and then retreats to his vehicle where he eventually, the, the subject returns and engages him back a, a second time, at which point he puts him down. And he specifically credited having just seen the Lumsford video within the past year as being pivotal. He realized what he was setting himself up for as far as, you know, the loaded dope in the trunk, um, the multiple suspects out and, man, and, and, you know, having to manage those suspects as well. So a, a great example of recognition prime decision-making, uh, again, to offer the, uh, the nerd explanation. Eric? No, that, that was pretty much it. Um, kind of like we talked about in the New Hall episode. The profession is, doesn't always move quickly, but we will develop tactics, techniques, procedures based on events to try to have better outcomes, right? More survivable outcomes. And they're not, usually they're not just some, like, stick the finger up in the air, ooh, that sounds like a good idea, let's go with it. People are trying to develop procedures that make it safer for all involved. And they're time tested and they're usually almost always driven by really bad outcomes and other events. So when folks who don't understand the previous events or who want to downplay them or don't understand the process that is involved in developing some of these procedures, try to weigh in and get them thrown out for whatever the cause de jour that is. It really develops some resistance or runs into resistance on the law enforcement side, and and that's one of the big reasons for it. Just like we talked about why the high-risk stop procedures are the way they are as a result of Newhall. There's other things that happen as a result of some of these videos that we talked about, like people who don't want to get out of a vehicle and now are trying to get back into it or trying to reach back into it. If you've seen Dean Keller, when you see people trying to reach back into cars, you're not going to allow that to happen. You know, people trying to get back into vehicles like there was one up in uh, Minnesota not terribly long ago. That. Now, granted, he was trying to flee, but if you're familiar with people going back into cars and arming themselves, then when somebody tries to do that, that's the recognition prime decision-making John's talking about. You're going to get some of those responses. Yeah. I guess one of the things that changed from a lot of these things, too, is the whole mindset of we never search a car alone anymore. 
Well, we shouldn't be searching a car alone anymore. Well, I think a common no, theme there is, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, I was going to say contact cover, which we haven't talked about because chronologically it's you know, the late 80s. We can talk about that in another episode. That came about as a result of one officer trying to do too many things or two officers both trying to do things rather than paying attention to what was going on. John, your thoughts? Uh, well, I think it goes, you know, kind of like you were, you were trying to talk about common themes. I think that something we're seeing in all these things we're talking, you know, especially the, the three we highlighted is officers getting fixated on a bigger goal, whether it's getting the load of dope, getting the guy off of guns and just forgetting the basic cop stuff. You know, if you look at the coats, um, you know, we all know that people attack and direct force most effectively directly in front of them. But that's where he chose to, to place himself when he did the quick frisk. So again, you know, a lot of the, uh, the officer safety stuff that we, we try to focus on, a lot of times, you know, when people get in a rush and they're trying to get to the big goal, they tend to forget that stuff. So I think it's an important reminder that officer safety, those good practices are always going to be, be better positioned if you actually follow them. You know, the, the big thing, you know, if I have somebody that, you know, I, I, you know, I handcuff, then I search, not the other way around. Uh, it doesn't work out too well if you uh, don't handcuff them first, especially if they're going to be arrested. Yeah, and I guess one thing that goes along with that, too, is the whole mindset of drug cases has changed, too. In the 80s and 90s, drugs were looked at as a much bigger deal than they are now, right or wrong. And, you know, there's a move politically and socially towards legalizing it. And if that's what the legislature choose to do is the voice of the people, then that's what the legislature choose to do. Uh, but I don't think there's the impetus now uh, for the hard interdiction stuff as there was during the time frame of these incidences. Well, that and just, I mean, well, introduction kind of assumes a proactive law enforcement stance, and there's not that many agencies doing that much pro-law enforcement days, uh, you know, pro, uh, pro, I'm sorry, proactive law enforcement since about 2014 or 2015. Uh, you know, I know some guys still out doing it and stuff like that and uh, doing some really good work, but uh uh, it's almost like there's not many people fishing the hole anymore. That's for sure. Eric, any thoughts? Now, California started on changing the, the drug enforcement issues long before the rest of the country did. But we had seen it out here where the risk was not worth the reward to pursue narcotics cases, at least at the street level, the way that they had been for, for many years, the way we were encouraged to coming up when I was a baby cop in the very early 90s. Yeah. I guess one final thing we should touch on with video, and that is their impact as it comes to court. I guess the landmark case here would be Scott v. Harris, which is the first time in which the Supreme Court actually watched a dash cam video of an incident and used that, that evidence in making their decision. And... Um, Yes, it's that decision is worth it, worth the read because it's funny because the 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 suspect side of that case is painting a picture. He was just out for a leisurely Sunday drive and this cop just comes and rams him. But when you watch the video, it's completely opposite of that. A very reckless driving uh, on the part of the suspect, uh, high speeds, weaving in and out of traffic. And, you know, so to. Well, the cops could just turn off their lights and back off. The, the, one of the justices addresses that was like, how were they were to signal to him that they were actually, in fact, not just waiting to catch him up the road somewhere. Uh, and so that was actually an eight to one decision 
uh, on behalf of the deputy sheriff in that case in the civil lawsuit resulting from uh, the injuries that were incurred. Um, John, thoughts on court and video? I, I, that's, you know, Scott versus Harris fundamentally changed that because you know before Scott v. Harris, um, facts were established at the local court level. The, mm -hmm. On appeal, they never reviewed them. And that was a huge game changer, which, you know, if you're out there working in law enforcement, you have to be, you almost have a um, almost presumptive obligation, affirmative obligation to provide good video of your work. If the, if there's not video, it's going to be assumed that you did something wrong. And most of the time, I mean, you know, we have IACP studies going back, you know, showing that, all, you know, 97% of the time videos exonerate officers. Um what I was going to share with Lee, I thought it was, it was fascinating, is that uh, we just had our legal refresher and we had a legal update uh, last week. And we had a decision come out of the Fifth Circuit, which is what handles us on. It was a taser case. And lo and behold, if you go out and you read the decision from the Fifth Circuit in the notes is a direct link to the video of the officer's body cam. And we keep telling you this, like the defensive practicing world, that you run surveillance everywhere, right? Not only does the decision have a copy of the officer's body cam it also has a copy of their surveillance video from the car lot that was overseeing the traffic stop as well so you know video uh, has been a hugely in my mind a hugely useful tool for law enforcement because we've always been doing what we're supposed to you know and the the video the video whether it's body cam or in car uh exonerates officers massively but again it's been a huge sea change as far as its influence in court and that you know um, defense attorneys, you know, plaintiff's attorneys, if they're suing civilly, don't just get to spin that uh, web of lies and, you know, throw out the most ridiculous um, versions of stories to, to, you know, to get qualified immunity denied, for example, right? They actually have to deal with the reality on, on the camera, and it's been hugely impactful ever since Scott v. Harris. It's funny that you talk about exonerating officers. I had an instance where uh, two of our deputies made a traffic stop, and the it was a young adult driver. His mother makes the complaint. And I'm sure she's making it based on what he's told her. Uh, accused the deputies of emptying a trash can into the suspect's car, making him stand outside in the cold without letting him have his jacket for 45 minutes, and that they broke the spoiler off of his vehicle. But when he watched the video, the traffic stop in total took 22 minutes. Uh, one of the deputies offered to pull his vehicle up next to the suspect vehicle and let the suspect sit in it with the heater running and the window down so that he would be warm. Uh, when they opened up the door, trash fell out of the car and they just put it back. And the spoiler was loose on the suspect's vehicle and one of the deputies showed him how to fix it. <laughs> you know, it's almost and, like suspects lie. I don't know. Yeah. And this whole thing goes, you know, this is one narrative that's being put out there. This is what happened. And you go watch the video. It's like, it's not even close to what happened. And John, I have to correct you. It's almost like suspects lie as much as plaintiff's attorneys do. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, Eric, you have the floor. Oh, boy, where to start? Um, no, I think the video has, as a whole has been a benefit for us. I want to go back to Scott versus Harris for a second. As good as that case is, if you have an interest in the case and how we as a profession need to consider things going forward, go look at the Harvard Law Review study on that case. So Supreme Court case decided based on not only the merits of the officer's testimony, but the, but the dash cam footage during the first 
Institute and what drove the decision to use deadly force. Harvard Law Review gets this and goes out and does some amazing demographic research. They ended up like 1,450, give or take, people in this study. They get some phenomenal demographics that's not just like race, age, and gender. It's urban, rural, socioeconomic, political affiliations, some very, very in-depth demographic work on this. And then they asked them whether or not this was an acceptable use of deadly force by the police, even though the Supreme, you know, even with the Supreme Court ruling on it. Now, the folks didn't know that when they were watching the video. Good news is, percentage-wise, majority of everybody agreed that it was a reasonable use of deadly force by the cops. But the numbers went from very low 50% to 75%. And what found out very quickly when you look, go through that study, that article, is it's not what people see, it's who sees it as to how that event's going to be perceived. Because there are various groups in this country who have different perceptions about what the cops do and why. And without going into those demographics, if you want to consider how to try to explain things to folks, that's that's one study and article well worth reading, that Harvard Law Review thing on Scott article on Scott versus Harris. All righty. John, what you got coming up? Uh, I'm not sure when it's going to air. I'm going to be in Ohio uh, at the April 30th and May 1st, uh, speaking up there and teaching shooting class. I'm going to be at Andy Stanford Speed Shooting Summit in June. Uh, should be at the Royal Range in August. And September is still kind of wide open, doing some stuff, obviously, with Tom. October, we've got the Range Master Instructors Reunion, as well as his uh, five-day class coming up there. And out in, at Bill's in November uh, at Meat Hall. So I actually remember my schedule for once. <laughs> Eric? Uh, nothing going on till the end of May. Uh, it's going to be a low light class in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, same with some classes in June. Again, just local Bay Area classes. July, I'll be at Gunsite. August, I'll be at Gunsite. September, I'll be in Dallas for the Shotgun Summit. I think they're calling it Thor's Hammer or Thunderstick. Uh, then from the end of September through most of October, I'm at Gunsight, um, and I'm free for classes in the last half of October, November, and December, and I'm more than willing to travel. All right. Uh, this will actually air on April 25th, uh, so this coming weekend, I am in Virginia, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the Richmond area. Uh, Friday is a Close range carbine class, Saturday is trigger management, and Sunday is shotgun. There's still time for you to sign up for that. Um, the first weekend in June, I am in Terre Haute, Indiana, and those classes are much needed uh, <laughs> for, for people to sign up for. This is a makeup class for one that got blizzarded out in February. Uh, Saturday will be trigger management. Sunday will be uh, my pistol craft class. Uh, the last weekend in June, I will be in Kalamazoo, Michigan, again, for pistol, excuse me, trigger management on Saturday, pistol craft on Sunday, and then I think it's September, I am at the Royal Range in Nashville, and then, like as John mentioned, the Range Master Reunion in October, and hopefully I'll be able to get some local stuff scheduled at some point, because everything I've got on the road right now is travel. Um, for all of you that are choosing to spend your time listening to us, the numbers are continuing to grow. Uh, the John Dobb episode has already hit 750 something. Uh, so that's pretty remarkable in just two weeks. 
uh, three weeks. Uh, the episode with Tim Reedy and Rick Remington's already hit 500. Um, the episode this past week with Brian Hill was right at 400 earlier today. Um, so I used to get excited when an episode would hit 200 in the first week, and now they're usually hitting 200 on the first day. And uh, thank you to the audience again. As we always tell you, please only share the links with your smart friends. And thank you for choosing your time, choosing to spend your time with us. <laughs>